Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Welcome to Eloquentia perfecta ex machina, a podcast series dedicated to the teaching of rhetoric and composition with and through a variety of media and focused on the writing program at St. Louis University. On this podcast, we interview instructors about how and why they use multimodal approaches, and we have instructors interview other instructors about the nuts and bolts of particular tools and assignments. In this week's episode, retroactively and unofficially titled The Michigan Invasion, I interviewed friend and former colleague Anne Charlotte Mecklenburg. Anne Charlotte and I talked about her work on Victorian and contemporary serial narratives and how those serial narratives structure or make room for fan engagement. We also talked about the ways that reading and writing fan fiction have shaped our own pedagogy as writing instructors. So welcome, Anne Charlotte. I'm so happy, both selfishly and happy for our listeners to have you here. I wonder if you could start uh, by introducing yourself. Tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. I'm Anne Charlotte Mecklenburg. I'm an instructor in English at Portland State University. My research broadly is on seriality from the 19th century to the present. So I study Victorian novels, I study television in the 20th and 21st century, and also a fandom and fan culture, mostly in the 21st century. Wonderful. So as, as you might have noticed from the title of this episode today, Anne Charlotte and I are going to be talking a little bit about fan fiction, fan writing, and first year writing. So I thought we could start, Anne Charlotte, if you wanted to describe in a little bit more detail how your research then corresponds to specifically fan fiction and fan writing. Sure. Yeah. So when we when we talk about seriality, we are often thinking about works, a sort of simple definition of seriality are works that unfold in parts, but have some sort of continuous connection between the parts or continuous narrative. So uh, graphic novels or comic books are often serial. Um, television is obviously the most sort of obvious example of seriality. But part of my work is also about thinking about what happens when we expand that definition of seriality even further to include things like fan fiction and fan works, which are often kind of um, characterized as things that happen within the gaps of other serial narratives. So it's like Mm -hmm. you watch an episode of TV and you kind of go to Reddit or you go to Twitter or you go to Archive of Our Own because you're so compelled by whatever the narrative is of that TV show, or maybe you're angry about something that happened on that show and you want to sort of write a fix-it fan fiction to you know, resolve the plot hole or plot problem that you've seen. Um, so fan fiction is sometimes theorized as, as kind of in excess or in addition to or in opposition to a serial narrative. And what I'm trying to think through in my research is the way that fan fiction itself is serial or is engaged with serially. So it's not just a kind of a subsidiary of other serial narratives. It's a kind of serial process in and of it. And so that involves, you know, writers on Archive of Our Own, which is one of the kind of big fan fiction archive sites. They post stories serially, so chapter by chapter. But also the way that fandom and fan conversations and fan vocabulary and fan tropes and plot lines end up not just sort of tracking with a serial narrative, but kind of detaching from it at a certain point. And so serial characterizations or serial storylines will sort of unfold in a fandom, often, you know, pretty unrelated to whatever is happening on the show itself or, you know, in the comic series itself or whatever. Mm-hmm. Could you give an example of either a Victorian or a contemporary serial narrative um, and how you see that mapped out? So one of my big research interests in my dissertation 
was on One Direction, the boy band. <laughs> so I could talk about that because I think, yeah, we often don't think about, you know, music fandom or boy band fandom as itself a serial narrative. And part of mm-hmm. what I was interested in was thinking about the ways that serial reading and serial interpretation that audiences and fans are used to doing with something like television. A lot of those same processes and sort of fan practices, fan behaviors, fan interpretations are happening with some with a boy band like One Direction or, you know, um, like BTS or Taylor Swift, a lot of there's a lot more connections between a fandom around Taylor Swift and a fandom around Game of Thrones than there are differences. Mm-hmm. Right. Wonderful. I am constantly really, really interested in the ways in which you're framing like a concert tour as a serial narrative. So I was wondering if we might start by thinking a little bit about how you came to specifically think about contemporary seriality and Victorian seriality together, kind of your your process as a graduate student in thinking about those practices and those historical moments as particularly in conversation with each other? Sure. Yeah. Oh, wow. I think the the way that I came to it was like, I really like Victorian novels and I really like fan studies. How can we put them together? <laughs> I don't think it was more like interesting than that. But I think that, you know, to give a better answer than that, I think that one of the things that this kind of uh, mashup can give us is... Um, I think that when when we talk about interdisciplinarity, which is a sort of a big mm-hmm. buzzword in academia, we often kind of implicitly assume that it's sort of like older, more established or broader disciplines kind of having something to say or something to give to younger, less established or more seemingly particular or specific disciplines. So for example, it's like it's a sort of a common joke or, or trope, right? That like you get a degree in English and you're like, everything is a text. I know now I now know how to read anything. I can intervene in film studies, I can intervene in TV studies, I can, you know, because I know how to read. You know, I think there's a there's a way where um with interdisciplinarity in the humanities, that interdisciplinarity and interdisciplinary influence kind of flows, is imagined to sort of flow downward Mm -hmm. um, to something like fan studies, which seems very, very specific. It's about a really specific thing. And that, you know, maybe it doesn't have so much to offer to somebody who's studying Middlemarch, you know, to talk about like what's happening on Twitter. And so part of what really motivated me in developing my research program was trying to think more expansively, I guess, about ways that we can, you know, as much as, you know, I do have a degree in English, I am one of those people who's like, I know, I now know how to read, I can read anything. I don't know what, like reverse the streams or something. I don't know what the (laughs) metaphor is. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> shake up the, the trickle down interdisciplinarity system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so it's a little bit hypocritical of me, I guess. But but yeah, I think that there's a lot of really creative, interesting, and theoretically generative stuff that's going on in fan studies that people outside of fan studies don't necessarily read or don't necessarily see as like applicable to them. And this is something that I don't know if it's, you know, cool for me to turn it back around on you, but mm-hmm. it's something that I learned a lot about from you and from your research and how well you were able to kind of balance those two things, you know, being very grounded in medieval and early modern theater, while also kind of demonstrating the way that thinking about contemporary audiences give us theoretical frameworks to understand that relationship between audience and stage. I remember at the same time, while we were both working on our projects, it was absolutely thinking about how these spaces that we often don't think of as the same kind of discursive spaces. I just spend a lot of time on Reddit in my chapter on uh, true crime fan communities and speculation, right? Which is a very, very 
different kind of fan writing than fan fiction, though it still, of course, does count as fan writing and performs many of those same functions. So I wanted to ask how um, you have taught a course that that br- brings in and thinks about fan writing and fan work, especially in the context of adaptation. But I was wondering more broadly how your work in fan fiction and fan writing has also influenced um, either at the level of kind of concrete assignment or discussion or at the level of, of general design, how that's influenced your uh, pedagogy teaching writing. Yeah, it's influenced it pretty significantly in a lot of ways. My participation in fan communities since I was, you know, early teenager or preteen influenced a lot about how I think about pedagogy. And so a couple of sort of those high level, you know, values that it's, I think it's kind of helped me develop is teaching academic writing as a kind of creative and collaborative skill, you know, in the same way that that fan writing is often modeled very, very much about kind of collaboration and community. And so, you know, I think a lot about the ways that, that academic writing and fan writing is kind of similar in that respect and how to kind of make that visible to students who might think about academic writing, you know, writing a paper for a class is very, you know, solitary and sort of this one-to-one relationship between, you know, student and instructor. And also emphasizing the the value of enthusiasm and kind of students' background knowledge and the kind of expertise that they bring into a classroom is also, I think, a huge part of of my teaching philosophy. You know, I think that um, one thing that that you see with fandom is the way that people's kind of weird niche interests end (laughs) up being you know, super generative to the sort of the skills of the community as a whole, whether that's somebody who is, you know, like a doctor who's able to kind of use their experiences with medical school to write a very, very like detailed fic about the cast of The Office as doctors or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, or whether that's people who sort of learned, you know, one of the sort of quintessential examples is fans who are kind of learning HTML and learning to code mm-hmm. in order to work with fan sites, one sort of big question was how how to sort of translate those sort of skills that, um, so yeah, sort of thinking in the writing classroom about the ways that students, the ways that students write in their everyday lives, how we can sort of look to that as, as sort of a source of expertise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know we have in previous episodes talked a lot about feedback and writing student feedback, the kind of rhetorical situation of different kinds of feedback and assessment within the writing classroom and strategies or or particular methodologies for for offering feedback to students. And one thing we have I know we have talked about before is the ways in which fan communities offer a model of both written feedback and encouragement editing and how that often looks very different than uh, traditional models of academic feedback. Could you talk a little bit about that about that process of feedback? Sure. Yeah, I think that generally when we're looking at feedback in fan communities, there's kind of two levels. There's Mm -hmm. uh, what's called beta reading, um, which is basically, you know, an editor, but it's somebody who's, you know, can be a friend or somebody who becomes a friend who and will read for sort of various levels of help that you're asking for. So some beta readers will just do kind of proofreading. Some of them will do kind of more structural feedback. So that's sort of, again, closest to maybe sort of a traditional model of like editing. And then when you post fan fiction, you know, there's the chance for people to write comments. And this has sort of changed over the years. But now at this point in fan community history, it's sort of generally thing to primarily give positive feedback. So to kind Mm -hmm. of express enthusiasm, to express liking, to, you know, point out 
particular lines or particular moments that you mm -hmm. were sort of very emotional about or very drawn to and you know or it can be sort of expressed like you know I hate you forever for making me cry but the kind of like <laughs> underlying emotion is very much about like let me reflect back to you the feelings that I felt which is yeah very different than academic feedback although I do think that I think can be useful in terms of thinking about feedback for students as, as you're thinking about what is the impact of your rhetorical choices that can look very similar to something like, you know, as an instructor, let me reflect back to you kind of what I thought or felt as I read this, you know, what was I able to understand? What was confusing? What was my process as a reader? I think that gives writers in both fan fiction and academic writing a lot of useful information, actually. Yeah, the ways in which I, as an instructor, often use in-essay comments in comparison to kind of end comments as that kind of, you know, affective map of here is what I am feeling or asking or or um, interested in as I am reading this. So kind of giving you uh, a, a map of how I felt as a, as a reader as I was going through. I was just grading an essay today and a student made a very, very funny joke um, about the uh, portrayal of technology in a Twilight Zone episode that we, we just covered in my technology and media class. And I find it really, really important to highlight that and said, like, I laughed out loud here. This was very funny. And I feel like that kind of affective mapping or or the kind of live consciousness feedback that I often give saying kind of here is where I'm feeling confusion. I learned much more from kind of writing or receiving feedback in fan writing I did at different points of my life than necessarily in the academy or in graduate school, where it was much more focused on learning how to then kind of compile all of that and then write a, a kind of essay note to the student that's that's kind of drawing comparisons to the expectation of the assignment, right? Or or modeling future actions. So it's interesting thinking about when you're writing feedback, I feel like sometimes there's a little bit of code switching, at least in my in my case, when it comes to how I am trying to recreate my reading experience for the student. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree though. I think I definitely use margin notes similarly. And yeah, I, I think it's it, like we said, it, it gives them, I think, useful information about what is and isn't working you know, mm -hmm. for for me as a reader. But also, I think, sort of going back to something from before, it hopefully <laughs> models that idea of, of me not necessarily as an assessor of student mm -hmm. writing, although, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the time I am, but as a kind of reader on an equal playing field. I think that, yeah, kind of emphasizing like when I laughed or when mm -hmm. I was confused, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm a real person, a real reader reading this. I'm not just kind of looking at it on the sort of like, you know, more meta level of like, did it do a good job at fulfilling the assignment or whatever? Mm -hmm. So in addition to fan writing and fan fiction as a process of thinking about writing feedback and assessment, I know that you have also taught fan fiction as a course text in your class on adaptation. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of why you brought fan fiction into the classroom, student response, and how that structured your conversations around adaptation. Yeah, so this was a first year writing class, like you said, themed around adaptations. And so when I brought in fan fiction, it was in the kind of first unit, which was on close reading. And mm -hmm. so we started with an original Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes short story. And then we also watched an episode of the BBC show Sherlock from 2010. And then we read a short work of Sherlock fan fiction. And so there were a couple of reasons that I, that I liked thinking about Sherlock Holmes in conjunction with close reading. But one of the reasons that I, I sort of built in that process um, of going from Conan Doyle text to adaptation to fan fiction was exactly to start 
modeling for my students this idea of, of thinking about literary works in particular as kind of like ongoing conversation. I think that the metaphor of, of adaptation actually has a lot of purchase when thinking about first year writing and helping students think about their own writing as intervening as well in this sort of longer conversation, as helping students think about, um, especially works of, of literature, but any kind of texts as not necessarily static, closed uh, systems, but kind of open living documents that they themselves can intervene in and, and have something to say about. And so the the sort of Conan Doyle to Sherlock to Sherlock fan fiction trajectory was a little bit of a, a model of that and was also kind of inviting my students to think about exactly the sort of question of, you know, what is the relationship between adaptation and fan fiction, which right. is really a question of, you know, defining theoretical terms, a question of audience and a question of form. So, you know, if an adaptation and a work of fan fiction, we can think of them both as sort of works of interpretation of a kind of original or source text. So what makes one different from the other? Are they different? Should we think of them mm -hmm. as different? Is it just that one is professional and one is amateur? Is it about the kind of the audience and community that they're embedded within? You know, is Sherlock a work of adaptation because it's intended for a, a sort of broad audience and fan fiction is a work of fan fiction because it's intended for fan community? Those, all those sorts of questions. I mean, I think that that all of those are interesting in of themselves, but also interesting in that sort of meta level of like, you know, again, thinking about our work as writers and thinking about the ways that our understanding of audience and form and genre impacts the kinds of stories that we tell or the kinds of arguments that we make. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So how did the students respond? You know, did they seem surprised? Were they kind of conversant in kind of the genre of fan writing? Yeah, they, that in that particular class, not many of them were fan fiction writers themselves or really sort of familiar with fans in that sort of like specific fan community way. You know, I think they were all in various ways fans of things, but not in that kind of, not in the sense of sort of being within fan communities. And so I think that, um, I think they were a little bit surprised. I do think that they thought it was kind of fun and they were at the very least kind of receptive to my argument of why it's sort of like interesting and important to talk about something, you know, that seems very kind of like non-scholarly or non-academic in the writing class. And so, yeah, I would say they were sort of like unfamiliar, but open to the experience. <laughs> and did that, did that progression of Conan Doyle to the adaptation to fan fiction, did they, was that part of a writing assignment then that was included in the course? Yeah. So they ended with a short closed reading paper where they could write about, you know, any one of those three basically. And so I had a pretty I think it was a fairly even split. But then also the entire class was building towards a final assignment, which was about writing an adaptation of their own, where I think a lot of them used what we were talking about, you know, especially with the sort of like Sherlock to Sherlock fan fiction jump in order to think about their own adaptations. Absolutely. And I know we talked before about the ways in which fan fiction often includes a kind of motivating move, as you said, a desire to fix something or an attempt to offer a particular insight through a particular character's mind. So did, did you feel like they also seem to understand kind of what, what that motivating move was, not to use a guy term, <laughs> but, uh, but what, what, what that motivating move was? Yeah, I think that that was absolutely part of it and and, and really sort of something that the entire class was ideally structured around. I also used that that motivating move language and handout explicitly in that class as well, though after the Sherlock unit. But that was one of the the sort of goals of the assignment was to ask students pretty explicitly to identify what their 
what kind of conversation their adaptation would be intervening in and mm-hmm. what kind of what kind of transformation their adaptation would be making of the original. It was basically mm-hmm. not only tell me what your idea is, but also what's motivating that idea or what's the intervention of that idea. Yeah, I know in, in our English 1900 courses here at SLU, students have to uh, first kind of map a particular discourse community and what we call the Disoy Logoi, and then design a project that will intervene. And we call that kind of the enactment um, of that project. And often I think about, you know, this work of adaptation is also a work of enactment and thinking about both medium and the, the particular particular um, rhetorical and compositional choices of that enactment and how that how that intervenes in um, a discourse community, whether that be, you know, in my medical humanities class, a lot of discussions around vaccines in America, right, or a Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> but I was also thinking, as you were talking about adaptation, my own kind of memories of as uh, a very young teen first stumbling across fan writing and the ways in which it was really important to me as a source of practicing and imitating particular styles of writing and particular voices. Uh, Obviously, imitation has a very long classical and theoretical tradition and rhetoric, but there aren't, I think, often moments in which a student is explicitly encouraged to try to imitate a particular writer or particular voice. It's often, you know, kind of broad discussions about attempting to assimilate, I guess, a kind of broad consideration of an academic style or an academic voice. I did remember there was one point in high school, and you're going to love this because this is going to be a a bleak house um, story. But at one point in high school, we had this, we had this assignment where there was a couple of different options of passages from Dickens. And I chose the first two paragraphs of Bleak House, the very famous fog descriptions. And one of the things we had to do was rewrite that paragraph. It had to be about something that, you know, that that paragraph wasn't about. The content was totally different. But we had to comma for comma, word for word, keep the structure of the paragraph intact. And so it was a interesting kind of paint by numbers uh, (laughs) practice of, okay, I'm going to construct something within the framework that Dickens, right? I'm going to, I'm going to construct something that sounds a little bit Dickensian. I was thinking about that in terms of the ways in which fan writing, at least when I think about my own experiences with fan writing as, as a young um, student, the, the ways in which it offered avenues of practicing and imitating, not just particular kinds of styles, you know, like I want this to sound like Arthur Conan Doyle, but also particular particular kinds of voices or particular kinds of dialogue, that that act of kind of trying on different or emulating specific kind of models is often something that is incredibly important, right, as a stepping stone into a a, a retcon classroom. Yeah, that's a really great point. And I hadn't like totally put that connection together. But I think that yeah, the metaphor or the the analogy makes a lot of sense. It reminds me not to bring up another, you know, Michigan English you know, writing <laughs> program <laughs> concept, but it reminds me a lot of Mike Bunn's Reading Like a Writer, which um, right. I think we've both taught in um, first year composition classes. And I've also taught at PSU in the courses that I'm teaching now, where the sort of, you know, the idea there, for those of you unfamiliar with it, is that when you're reading a piece of writing, it's basically a a, a model that's encouraging students to look at the how as well as the what, to break down a piece of writing into the choices that the author's making, and also kind of crucially, um, you know, why the author might be making those choices and what options were there that the author kind of didn't choose? What were the kind of roads Mm -hmm. not taken? And why might it be that the author kind of chooses, you know, framework A over framework B? What's the kind of effect of that? And it, it kind of reminds me, too, of the model of they say, I say, which I know a lot of 
writing instructors use, which offers kind of pretty clear, explicit sort of like writing templates that students can adopt, but also kind of a lot of examples of writing and, and a lot of the kind of exercises in that book are about sort of thinking about what is it in, in, in a piece of writing that we want to imitate or take away? You know, what strategies do we really admire that we want to kind of use ourselves? And so that's something that in my uh in the writing class I'm teaching currently, it's something that we're focusing on a lot. Every time we read a piece of writing, like I'm always asking them, they're probably very sick of it. Like, what is it they liked about this? What were the strategies or the choices that this author was making that you could see yourself using in your own writing? And so I think that there are like really interesting resonances between some of the writing instruction around kind of rhetorical analysis and sort of breaking down a piece of writing to, to its component parts and the work of, of fan fiction. It is a sort of, I think, similar process to thinking about what are the component pieces of a piece of that you yourself want to use. I'm really interested the ways that you brought up the the counterfactual and the ways in which counterfactuals are really important for rhetorical analysis is saying, well, the writer could have done it this way. Why did it? Not just why did they do this this way, but why do you think they didn't do it X, Y, Z ways? When I feel like often fan fiction is seeing those counterfactuals and kind of following one off the beaten path as well. It's like, well, actually, right? They did this instead of this. I disagree with this decision and, and I am going to um, enact that counterfactual, right? I'm going to offer that, that other side of the forking path as a reader experience. Yeah, fan fiction is is all about alternate universes and mm -hmm. playing out alternate universes. And I think that that actually writing pedagogy is, is very similar about being able to mm -hmm. sort of identify the alternate universes and see how they would play out in order to better understand the universe that we are in. I was wondering also if you could talk a little bit about your own experience um, as both a, a writer of uh, kind of research and academic prose, as well as a writer of fan fiction and how those two practices coexist for you. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it's it's sort of an un, an uneven or uneasy coexistence because I think I'm a slow writer of both, and so it definitely mm -hmm. you know there have been times when you know one has kind of gotten sacrificed to the other. But I think that you know my life is generally best when there is a kind of there's a balance of both, and and we've definitely talked about this before that one of the the real benefits of uh, fan fiction as a writing practice is the kind of this emphasis on sort of immediate positive feedback. I mean, I get mm -hmm. in my email inbox every day, like a list of whoever has sort of put it's on Archive of Rowan, it's called like leaving kudos. It's basically just mm -hmm. like a like. And so, you know, I get that list of people who've liked things that I've written. And so it's sort of like you start the day with like, oh, you know, like, this many mm -hmm. people have liked something that I wrote. And that's not something we hear a lot in academia. Right. <laughs> I know, yeah. My, my kingdom to add the kudos function to a lot of journal pages. So you could look up not just your metrics, but kind of like, oh, somebody sent me a nice thing about this article that I wrote three years ago. Um that I imagine that three people have read, right, rather than um, the kind of broader public that is available for fan fiction. Yeah, yeah, it would be nice. But yeah, I think that, that that level of kind of more immediate and more positive feedback is is really nice. But even when I'm not publishing things on AO3 necessarily, when I'm just writing, you know, I think it reminds me that I like writing and that I'm a good writer, mm -hmm. which is, you know, again, it seems really basic and obvious, but it's something that I think that at least when I personally am writing academic projects, it's easy for me to forget. It's like I'm focused on kind of perfecting this piece of writing, um, or it's really mm -hmm. easy to sort of get in my head about it. And so fan writing just feels like it has lower stakes. It's less time to my kind of like professional identity and, you know, my sort of, and, you know, professional outcomes. And I think another, another benefit of it, and this is maybe a little bit more abstract, is that one thing that I really struggle with in academic writing, and I don't know if you feel similarly, is that it's sometimes hard for me to kind of understand or visualize my audience. Mm -hmm. Um, 
yeah, just sort of conceptualizing who the audience is for even a conference paper where like, you know, you're physically looking at the people in the room. And so that it should be easy to sort of conceptualize audience, but it still feels really hard. Like, you know, what level of explanation do I need? You know, what kind mm-hmm. of familiarity will readers have with X or Y? You know, what kind of, what's going to be sort of convincing or persuasive? All of those are things that I have a sort of a hard time abstracting and I sort of easily get into my head about it. Whereas with fan writing, I do always feel like I kind of know who my audience is and I kind of know what they want. Mm-hmm. It just feels more like, I know that if I like, you know, publish this joke, people are going to find it funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but is this too much of a sort of like historicist approach to the Avengers or something? Like there's, it, it feels like I know how people are going to react and what people are going to say, which is an interesting kind of certainty that I don't feel like I have about an academic writing community. I mean, one of the reasons I asked you this question was because I think there's a lot of really great conversations around the ways in which fan fiction becomes a kind of gateway for young people. So thinking about teens and their their processes of coming to understand their own writing voice about, as we said before, kind of imitating, imitating the voices of others and kind of learning that understanding of style. And I think that there's often less conversation about, especially academics, I think as a group, often are, are people who are still engaged in fan writing often, and perhaps not talking about it quite as much, but also thinking about how how those two writing practices coexist. When I think about the fan fiction I wrote as a teenager and the ways in which it got me into writing, I think it, it was a very different writing experience of what, what I needed from kind of my relationship to writing, that things I kind of returned to as a graduate student. And, and AC, you've said this, thinking a little bit about the ways in which your relationship to the practice of writing, especially during the dissertation stage, can be a really tense relationship, especially when it comes to trying to trying to square your own output, thinking about practices of writing, thinking about where you write, how you write. I at one point had just a, a very toxic relationship with Scrivener that I needed to learn how to kind of get out of. But a lot of it was thinking about, okay, how do I learn to like writing again, right? How do I, how do I have a more reparative relationship with my own writing that isn't locked within one specific genre? Yeah, I definitely felt similarly. I, yeah, once, as you know, I think a month in the summer when, you know, maybe I should have been writing other things, but instead I was just writing fan fiction because it was like, if I don't spend this month writing fan fiction, I'm never going to write anything again is sort of how it felt, which, you know, you know, obviously in that moment was very extreme and dire and and (laughs) may or may not have been true, but it's sort of how it felt. It's like, I felt so burnt out and this was also, you know, in the last year or so. And so like, there were Mm -hmm. a lot of reasons to be burnt out and it was sort of like, yeah, I need to sort of figure out a writing habit that's going to be sustainable and that that feels like it has no stakes or else, you know, I'm never going to be able to get back to any sort of high stakes or professional writing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So for those who are listening who have absolutely no kind of background or knowledge of fan fiction or fan writing, what do you think that is a practice as a kind of cultural artifact, as a potential kind of student background? What do you think that instructors might learn right from those practices, even if they are not themselves engaging in them or um, don't find those spaces uh, of particular interest? Um. I think this is also a generational question, right? We are both kind of in the early mid thirties range of people who grew up at a very specific time. As you've said before, there's a very long history of both fan activity, fan community that stretches back for decades. But also when we think about the ways in which different kinds of virtual spaces and, and, you know, online spaces like Archive of Our Own or Live Journal blossomed at different times, we're looking at very, very rapid change. Whereas, you know, that's going to be very different 
different for kind of different generations, both of instructors and of students. So we have had one very specific kind of experience when it comes to the history of the internet and the ways in which that becomes a very important platform. That now at this at this period in, in time in history, there is a sort of, you know, maybe a sort of concrete or more centralized sense of what fan culture is or what fan culture means. It is a sort mm-hmm. of a specific culture or a set of cultures that are, yes, primarily online, primarily referred to like specific things. I think that we can also, though, open up the idea of what fan fiction is. Yes, it refers to like the, the specifics of what people are publishing on Archive of Our Own. But it's also, as we've sort of been suggesting through this episode, I think we can also think about fan fiction a little bit more abstractly for our purposes as, as thinking about kind of fundamentally fan fiction is about the relationship that that you have as simultaneously a reader and a writer of mm-hmm. um, of of work, you know, of of intervening into conversations that have existed, you know, before you and will exist after you, mm-hmm. and thinking about kind of how you navigate the 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 kind of twinned relationship of reading and writing that you can't, you know, as writing instructors know, you can't write without reading and you can't read without writing. You know that reading is an act of interpretation and writing is an act of reading, and I think that that fan fiction. Um, models that or or raises those questions in a way that, you know, we can ask about, you know, in a lot of different contexts, or we don't have to sort of be readers of sort of like Hurt Comfort Avengers fan fiction in order to be able to kind of ask those questions or think about um, how framing academic writing in that way can be helpful to students um, who also may not be sort of writing fan fiction on, on archive of their own, but who may, you know, may be getting into, you know, arguments with their friends about Game of Thrones or, mm-hmm. you know, about Squid Game or whatever. And so I think that ultimately fan fiction is about a relationship with media of any kind, which I think that we all have. So how can how can our listeners find you if they want to learn more about your amazing work and and your your work on on seriality and fandom? Oh, uh, great question. Well, I don't use it that much, but you can always get in touch with me on Twitter at AC Mecklin. I've also published a couple of things in, well, um, one forthcoming article on One Direction fandom on Tumblr in Camera Obscura mm-hmm. and an article on spoiler fandom in uh, 19th century sensation fiction and the MCU, which mm-hmm. is in 19th century context. Wonderful. So you should absolutely go read both of those. They are amazing. I can highly recommend them. involved in this podcast series to share an assignment or tool or to pitch an interview please contact me at sheila.corsi at slu.edu eloquentia perfecta ex machina eloquentia perfecta ex machina eloquentia perfecta ex machina